second lesson is from the book of Acts. And it's printed here in your liturgy. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go in to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Caleb mentioned there, when you talk about the ascension, uh, there's two sides of the same coin. And in our call to worship and in, in Caleb's communion remarks, he emphasized um, the aspect where um, ascension, uh, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that indeed Jesus Christ is seated in the heavenlies, the right hand of the Father a picture of, of, of what every human being is, is destined for, to also be at the right hand of the Father. And in the world to come, where God establishes justice, that's exactly where we will be, living into our birthright as co-regents with Jesus. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is to think about what the doctrine of the ascent, or what the, the event of the ascension um, and the doctrines that flow out of that, the teaching that flows out of that, the observations especially of the early church, what do those have to tell us about the core of what it means to be human? Now, you need both those emphases, and the reason why, and <laughs> it dawned on me, um, this particular way of thinking about it, as Caleb was sharing during communion and I was thinking about how, particularly in the African-American church, uh, during the period, this, the horrible period of slavery, it's those passages, like the one that Caleb referred to from Daniel, it's those passages that sustained, that sustained a vision that Jesus, who left in that way, would come again, in that way, and he would come to set the world aright. 
How can you when you are in chains? As Daniel and his fellow uh, Israelites were in chains. And how can you when you are in chains during the awful period of slavery hear a word of hope about what it means to be human? Much less hear that within the context of the promise that human beings will one day live in a world of shalom and justice. And then on top of it, how are we supposed to live that out now? You can only do that if you have an amazing and profound spirit-infused, spirit-created faith that in fact human beings are made for all of that and that God will set the world aright. That's why the two emphases, two emphases rather, are important around decision. Hopefully that'll come out in the homily. Hopefully we'll round that out. Let's pray. God, we have feasted at your table. We've read your word. We've heard the gospel. We've experienced the gospel. We have been amazingly, mysteriously, already transported into the world to come, particularly at communion where we are raised to be with Christ, to feast on him in our hearts by faith. And now as we reflect on the ascension of our Lord Jesus, may your Holy Spirit be the one who teaches us in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you, when God started loving you, and why God loves you, what would you say? If, if I were to ask you when God started loving you and why God loves you, what would you say? I imagine some of you here this morning may not resonate with that question for all kinds of reasons. Um, maybe you don't believe in God, so how can that be a relevant question for you? If, if that describes you, fair enough. <laughs> We're glad you're here, whyever you're here and whoever you are. Um, for others of us, we may not like that question for any number of reasons. Um, so if you're in either of those camps, I, I beg you to indulge me here just for a little bit. Let me explain to you why I think those questions and their answers really do matter, and they matter a lot. Now, rather than hide the ball here, I want to go ahead and say what I think the answer to that is. Um, when did God start loving you and why does God love you? And, and here's what I want to put forward. There's never a time that God has not loved you. Never a time that God has not loved you. And the reason he loves you is because he is the creator of the universe and he loves what he has made, especially those who he has made in his image. He loves what he has made and he has made you. Now, I think a lot of you will hear those words and think to yourself, hmm, that sounds about right. I think that sums it up for me. But I think that it's 
more complicated than knowing that those words are right and that talking about those questions and answers in that way are the right way to do it. And I think that where it gets complicated is in the affections of our hearts. Regardless of whether we're comfortable affirming that God has never not loved us and that God loves us because he made us and he loves what he has made, regardless of affirming all of that, I think that often we tend to live to live as if God has his back back turned to us much of the time. I think we imagine that God turns to face us with a smile only when we do something to merit that smile or prove that we're worthy of it. Those can be all kinds of things. Maybe it's that profession of faith Uh, you made, when you made your infant baptism, so to speak, your own. Maybe it's your conversion as an adult when you joined the team, so to speak. Or that time you felt super sincere when approaching the sacrament and you were saying to yourself over and over again things like, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. Never going to think that again. Whatever. We all play those games, I think. I think many, maybe all of us, at one time or another, can relate to a lived reality wherein we expect that there are limits and conditions to God's love for us. Familiar territory, I fear, for many of us is the lived reality wherein we expect that there are limits and conditions to God's love for us. Uh, Frankly, I think it's hard for us to break out of those patterns because they tend to operate very powerfully and at a subconscious level. There's so much that has happened to us to make us imagine that God is rather like certain people in our lives. There are so many experiences that we have had with conditional love and acceptance in our formative years. You know, I I remember, in a way, like it was just yesterday, uh, painfully, when I was in high school, Uh, being shunned and shamed by grown men football coaches. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, upon my decision to not play varsity football, I had played some JV football and I had showed some good promise and they were recruiting and pushing hard for everyone who showed promise to go, you know, push forward into varsity because, you know, we were going to be a state championship team and all of that and You know, the full court press was on, and as long as it looked like I was headed in that direction, I mean, it was all back slapping and, hey, come over here where, you know, all the players are getting together after, you know, after school today, this, that, and the other thing. And then I realized that, 
you know, for me, if I had done that, it would have been the end of my academic career. I, just, I wasn't one of those students who could do all of it. And so I decided to play tennis instead. And then it was, seriously, grown men football coaches shunning and shaming in the hallways. Sometimes out loud and sometimes just literally looking right through me. You know, all of us have some set of experiences like that. And, uh, and some of them, are cor- of course, would, would, would have so much more gravitas than than the example that I chose to share this morning. Um, but the point is, is that we have these experiences that make it difficult for us to think of God's love for us the way God's love for us is revealed in the fullness of the gospel. That's why we talk about this stuff at church every week. That's why we have communion every week. That's why we want you here as many weeks as you can be here because formation in the fullness of God's love is a yoke that's easy, but it's a yoke that we always want to be on us, right? Because breaking through to that fullness of God's love is not happening automatically, And, you know, this is a great Sunday to talk about all of this, Uh, because today is the day that we are celebrating the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you've already heard about seven times. The feast day for ascension was earlier in the week. We didn't think we'd have great turnout, like on Thursday or whenever it was. So we were doing ascension as this Ascension Sunday. And the reason why this is a great day to talk about all these themes that I've been trying to talk about and develop is because it is the ascension of Jesus that reminds us that it is our humanity in all of its messiness, our humanity in all of its messiness, that's what God loves. And he has loved our humanity in all of its messiness since before the foundation of the world. I think you've heard me say some of this before, but did you know that the Feast of Ascension, the celebration of the Day of Ascension, it was central to the early Christians in the same way Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter were. Uh, The ascension and its prefiguring and the transfiguration of Jesus, those were days that were celebrated and reflected upon because those parts of Jesus' story were seen as inextricably connected to the rest of the important phases of God the Son's journey to earth and back to God. And what the early church fathers and mothers saw in the ascension that we sometimes miss is that when Jesus ascends to the Father, he takes our messy humanity with him. Paul says it this way, God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us 
even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's usually where we stop. But then he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved and you've been raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's right, even now, while you're sitting in your chair, you are also seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. That is not simply symbolic language that foreshadows what is yet to come. It's real, it's now, it's spiritual, it's invisible, it happens most demonstrably at the table, but it also happens all the time and at all times. We are there with Jesus. Our humanity has been joined to his. We are already home through the strong bond of love and mysterious union with Christ through the Spirit. The joining together of our humanity with the risen Lord Jesus is already, and it's not yet, but it's very, very real. This is really all over the New Testament when you start looking for it. It is perhaps why Jesus, just a couple of quick examples before we move towards where we're headed finally. Um, it's perhaps why Jesus, when he confronts Paul, when Paul is still Saul of Tarsus, remember that? It's Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Here's what we might expect him to say about Saul persecuting the Christian church. Paul, or rather Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? But that's not what he says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? To violate a child of God is to literally strike at the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, for we are united with him. And in, in the book of Hebrews, the apostle who wrote it pictures Jesus as, look at this later, okay, because I can't spend enough time with it to really delve into it, but look at this later. It's in Hebrews chapter 2. The apostle pictures Jesus as leading us in our worship. Simultaneously, here in the Spirit, in this room, and in the heavenly dimension where we are present in the Spirit. This is what he says. It was fitting that God, for whom and through all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, that's you and me, should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through sufferings, 
For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed. And then he takes out two passages from the Old Testament and he finds them on the lips of Jesus. And he says, for this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, quote, this is in the mouth of Jesus, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That's Jesus here leading us in worship. And here am I and the children whom God has given me. That's Jesus in the world to come. Both of them happening at the same time. That's why we come to worship. Because our humanity is united with the humanity of Jesus. And everything Jesus is doing now in the world to come impacts us. And in order to remind us to live into that reality... Everything Jesus is doing in the world to come, he's doing now in our worship. That's the significance of the ascension, that our humanity and all of its messiness is joined to the glorified Jesus. This way of thinking is, I think, a little bit foreign to a lot of us, you know, including me. I appreciate Caleb who, God bless him, is with the kids in the open gym right now with a couple of other, couple of other dads. We're grateful for that. That's why I appreciated Caleb beginning the service by saying, um, yeah, the ascension, wow. Yeah, it's, it's hard to <laughs> take in. I think because we don't talk about it very much and we don't learn from the early church around it. Um, I think one of the reasons why is because we've inherited certain theological emphases that have focused on Jesus' work on the cross at the expense of the other aspects of what Jesus has done for us. Um, we've focused on Good Friday at the expense of the Incarnation, the Transfiguration, even a little bit on the expense of the Resurrection, and big time to the expense of the ascension. The consensus of the early church was that the redemptive works of God that we often refer to in shorthand as the gospel would not have been complete, would not have been complete without what occurs in Jesus and in us, in his ascension in human flesh to the right hand of the Father where he will reign forever and ever as a human being. They would have put it this way, Jesus became a human being in the incarnation so that his union with humanity bonds our humanity in communion with the very being of God. The very being of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. St. Irenaeus would put it this way, and I quote, Now this is his word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the last times was made a man among men, that he might join the end to the beginning, that is, man to God. I'm sorry, Irenaeus was not yet clued in that he should be saying people and humans. And, you know. But I'm a purist when it comes to quoting people, so sorry for the gender insensitivity there. This is his word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Last time, in the last times, he was made 
a man among men, that he might join the end to the beginning that is man to God. As another early church leader put it, human beings are God's greatest obsession. And and the ascension is what drives those points home. The ascension reminds us that we are not only united with Christ in his death on the cross, but that our union with the ascended human Jesus is the evidence that God welcomes our still contorted humanity into his divine presence in order to heal us. Another church father by the name of Gregory puts it this way, that which Christ has not assumed, he is not healed. But that which he has united to his Godhead is also saved. In other words, Jesus heals us not just through the cross, but our healing begins even in the incarnation when he assumes our humanity, continuing through the cross where he unites us to his death for our sin and in the resurrection and ascension when we are raised to the newness of life and seated with Jesus in God's hospitable and healing presence. In communion, we say we are united by the Spirit to the risen Lord. Ascension Sunday reminds us that 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 uniting happens now in the Spirit, our messy humanity, brought for healing into the presence of God. Uh, One theologian with a bent also for poetry puts it this way, quote, Jesus hears all the words we speak, Words of pain, words of protest, words of rage, words of violence. He hears them and he takes them into the presence of God the Father. And he says, this is the humanity that I have brought home. It's not a pretty sight. It's not edifying and impressive and heroic. It's just real. Real and needy and confused. And here it is, this complicated humanity, brought home to heaven, dropped into the burning heart of God for healing and transformation. I began this homily by asking the question, when and why did God start loving you? I asked it because it fits with the theme of today's musings. But I also asked it because a friend of mine asked me a question about a week and a half ago that conspired with the church calendar, if you will. And the person asked me in so many words this question. Are you able to imagine that God looks at you with the same wonder and joy with which you look upon your daughter? Are you able to imagine that God looks at you with the same wonder and joy, Bob, as you look upon your daughter? Can you imagine, Bob Reed, that that is how God looks at you? Honestly, my first impulse was to simply say yes right away. I mean, look, 
I am a halfway decent pastoral theologian. You know, I freaking know the right answer to that question. Thank you very much. But honestly, the question caught me off guard. I didn't think that I could say yes in a fully honest way. And so I pondered and I prayed and I began preparing for this Sunday with that thought in mind. We will not be able to love others as God has loved us unless we are on a journey to accept more fully that God loves us because he made us and God loves what he's made. Let's be on that journey together, sisters and brothers. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.